listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. Um, welcome to Crosspoint. Glad you're here with us. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the usual guy preaching. Brad Evangelista usually is, and he's been working through the Gospel of John over the last several months. I can't remember now. Um, years? Months? Weeks. And uh, he is taking a break from preaching, and he'll actually be out of the office um, for, the, for the rest of this month and actually through July on a bit of a sabbatical. So we uh, certainly want to just pray for him for rest and rejuvenation. Um, but this morning, we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you go ahead and turn there, um, I do want to pray for us. Um, but actually, before I do that, I also wanted to, and John Fought mentioned this at the beginning, really just so thankful for all the people who made VBS happen this year, from the volunteers and, and uh, all the people doing different little jobs in the morning and in the evening, and uh, parents who dropped kids off. It was just, it was a great week. Uh, I'm still exhausted. I know a lot of you are still exhausted, but, um, but thank you so much. I think the Lord really did and does use things just like that uh, to, to minister to children and plant seeds in their own lives uh, that, that maybe bear fruit then or maybe bear fruit years, decades later. Uh, so let's, let's pray to that end that the Lord would use um, something like Vacation Bible School for that purpose. Let me, let me pray for us before we get into this text. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the seeds that you have planted among each of us as we have heard the gospel, as we've heard your word proclaimed throughout our lives. Even maybe for some of us, maybe right now, the first time, Lord, we want to be good stewards of your word. We want to, uh, we want to cultivate your word in our hearts. We want to cultivate your word and the growth and the fruit of your word in the lives of of, of one another, and especially of, of the children in our midst. We thank you for Vacation Bible School and uh, for all the people who served so faithfully this past week. We do ask that you would, that you would bring fruit from this uh, that would exalt your name and that would bring joy to our church family and, um, and to, to all the, the children who have come through these doors this past week. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timothy, uh, there's just two of these letters, two Timothys. Paul, the apostle, has, he wrote both of them. He also wrote another letter called Titus. And what's, what's unique about these letters, they're called the pastoral epistles because they tend to focus on pastoral ministry. They tend to focus on the life of the local church, um, how to, to lead, how to, to build on a good foundation of gospel truth. Uh, but these, these letters are unique in that they, um, they focus on this idea of godliness, being godly, in a way that really the rest of the New Testament simply doesn't, doesn't really emphasize. Second Peter talks a lot about godliness, uh, but outside of that, you really don't actually see that word in the New Testament all that much, though obviously that's a concept present throughout Scripture. Um, Timothy... 1 Timothy especially stresses the importance of godly men, women, churches, and pastors who are built on sound 
doctrine. So let me trace this idea for you through this letter uh, up to this point. Uh, For one, godliness is not an element of Christian witness, but it is really the defining characteristic, if, if not one of the defining qualities of Christian witness. If you look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul urges then uh, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, for Paul, godliness is not just part of an element of the Christian life, but it's one of the defining characteristics of Christian witness in the world. As he encourages them, urges them to be praying for leaders and everyone in authority, one of his aims is that it would allow them to actually live godly lives. That's what Paul wants the church to be known for in in Ephesus. All right, then you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, and we see that, that, that godliness is an inseparable companion of gospel truth and is in fact summarized by the good news of the gospel. So 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is this mystery? How does he summarize it? He, he quotes from some ancient hymn, which reads, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness is not a story merely. The mystery of godliness is, in fact, a person, according to 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. The mystery of godliness is wrapped up in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. So that godliness is really inseparable from the truth of the gospel. You, you cannot have one without the other. These go hand in hand. They're a tandem. And then finally, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, it says this, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What he's saying here with this idea of training for godliness is that godliness itself is not haphazard. It doesn't just spontaneously appear. It doesn't just happen. But it comes through a life of conscientious awareness, deliberately looking toward pursuing godliness. You have to be trained. It won't just happen. So let's define godliness maybe. Um, I think one helpful word for godliness is is piety, or that's one way people translate it. Uh, I think sometimes that has some weird connotations, though, so I'm going to give you a bit of a a more broad definition than that. I I think godliness, at least according to what we're reading here today, is, is really summed up in orienting your life around God and his word. Orienting your life 
around God and his word. In other words, if you are godly, to, per, to cultivate godliness is to cultivate a Godward life. Where every, every aim of your existence, every element of your day, all the different facets of what makes you you, just the very act of being is oriented on some level back to God. I think that's a good working definition for godliness. So, 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 so just accept it, receive it, and then let's, let's, let's keep through this letter. So let's pick up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. I want you to pay attention to that word godliness, and we'll, we'll, see, um, we'll see where this goes. Paul says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pause there. I've got three points this morning that I want to, to, to share with you about godliness. Number one, godliness is not the means to an end. Godliness is not the means to an end. See, Paul has a specific type of person in mind here. I think as you read this, this instruction, you get a pretty clear picture of the kind of person that Paul is talking about. This person, according to verse 3, is, is contrarian, and maybe they don't even realize it, but they live in a manner that is contrary to the gospel. They literally, in some cases, teach different doctrine, so they're positively against the gospel in some ways. And then in others, they disagree with sound teaching. So it's not just that they positively put forward something else. It's that they also negatively, uh, well, they negate what is true, what is good. This person is, by, as a consequence of this, this person is conceited and ignorant. And, and what I find so interesting about this is that this is the reality regardless of the appearance of it. You know, there, there are a lot of people, I think, who can proclaim a lot of things about the Bible, what it says, what it means. Maybe they look the part. Maybe they fit the bill. And yet, despite their appearances, Paul is saying, they are in actuality conceited and ignorant, not based on anything that you might notice or discern in them, but based on the simple fact that they've rejected the gospel and are promoting something entirely different, or maybe something partially different. Regardless of appearance, these, these people, these men, these women, 
are ignorant of the reality, the truth of the gospel. Just as an aside, it reminds me of just the, the need for, for discernment, especially in our own homes, especially in the bookstore, especially when we're browsing the internet and reading blogs and posting things and sharing articles, and especially all, when all of that has to do with saying something about the gospel or what we believe about God's word and who Jesus is. You know, I, I think, oh, but you know, but this blog, it's so helpful. And they're a Christian, probably, I think. Look, they use the right language. They, they have all the right words. The graphics are great. They're, they're, this, what could be wrong here? This is good. Well, what, what determines whether something is vain and conceited and ignorant of the gospel is not necessarily how shiny and polished it is, but, but actually what, what's motivating, what's driving it, What's the gospel that's being proclaimed in reality, not just in word? Oh, but look at all the good that that ministry, that person, that organization, that church is doing. They're doing some really great stuff. How can, how can we reject, how can we say that they're not understanding the gospel? Look at the good fruit that I think I'm seeing coming from this. What I, want you to, what I want you to do, what, I, what we ourselves as a church and as just the people of God in this day and age absolutely must be vigilant about is that we, we hold people, churches, pastors, one another to real gospel standards where, where we, we want the gospel to be proclaimed in all of its fullness and in its truth. And, and where we are not easily swayed by things that look good and are packaged neatly and, and put on the shelf for our consumption, uh, but where we, we cherish the gospel according to God's word. These, these type of people are, are not just conceited and ignorant, but they're, they're hungry for controversy. They're hungry for quarrels and arguments, especially over minutia, words, Paul says, the, just the meaning of a word. Uh, look, I've studied Greek, I've studied Hebrew. Words matter. The words of Scripture, how they're translated, that certainly absolutely matters. But I think what Paul is getting at here is something beyond that, something that, that is much more trivial than that. He, he's talking about a mindset, an attitude, a way of living, a way of, of, of reading the Bible, of living the Christian life that is always, always looking to nitpick and pinpoint m- places of heresy. Of course, it's never, it's never in the mirror. It's always out there, but you, the, this, you've seen it. You know it. Maybe some of us, even from time to time, are guilty of it, of being a little too eager and willing to settle into quarreling, debating, arguing. The result of this is, is envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, uh, did you hear what word he used? That guy's woke, right? We, we, we have these, uh, we assume the worst of people at times because we, we want, we, it's like we, we revel in this way of living. But let's see where this goes. Let's see what happens. It attracts, Paul says, depraved minds, deprived of the truth. In, in the zeal for whatever it is these men in Ephesus are trying to promote in this church, what they're really encouraging, what they're really stirring up, what they're really drawing in are people who are absolutely devoid of gospel understanding. 
That's, that's the fruit. That's how you see it. That's how you know it. At the heart of this person, Paul says, is that they imagine that godliness is really a means of gain. Godliness, in verse 5, he says, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now, Paul is talking, as it, as it unfolds, we realize he's, he's really zeroing in on, in particular, it would seem false teachers here who have found a way to benefit financially from their false teaching. They're accumulating followers, they're accumulating wealth as a result, or, or if nothing else, they, they use, they wield the authority that they have to benefit themselves. They stand to gain by it. But I hope you understand that, that this is more, that this, this applies more broadly to, to all of us, whether we seek to use godliness for, for financial gain. Um, it's intended for those who maybe even more broadly love access or prestige, power, independence, right? The love of money is not a reference merely to coin collecting. You understand? I mean, right? I mean, can you imagine if this was just Paul say, hey, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't love money. The problem is never loving money itself, like the actual physical tangible currency, right? The problem is loving money for what it brings or what we expect or what we think that it will bring. Paul is not highlighting simply the problem of people wanting to be rich, though that was obviously a problem here. He's highlighting the reality that people tend to want access. They want an entryway into the wider world, whether it is through stuff or through power, being able to even buy your place in this world. Paul is highlighting here ulterior motives, cravings of the flesh, desires of a sinful heart that see then godliness as something to be bartered and traded for something else that you really want. It's as if these, these people are putting on godliness as though it's some sort of accessory some, some sort of status symbol in their community that will gain them some favor. But I think we tend to do this ourselves. I want you to see that this is not something isolated to rich men in Ephesus in Timothy's day, but that it, it's something that we have to wrestle with ourselves. How often do we put on godliness? How often do we wield godliness so that we can find acceptance in a culture that we just want to be a part of? How often do we put on godliness to mask the fact that we're deeply insecure with ourselves? And so we put this facade on, that way everyone else is, is just none the wiser, and we fit right in. How often do we put on godliness in lieu of repentance? You understand, I'm not talking about genuine, true godliness. I'm talking about something more akin to a counterfeit godliness, right? Nevertheless, we, we, we ourselves are prone to, tempted to do this very thing, where we, we want to put on a facade, a mask of godliness. We say the right things. We, we, we have the right shibboleths with people. That way we can just kind of coast through. Maybe, maybe even find the acceptance or, or, the, or the, 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 we want to be known and, and welcomed and received and, 
and, and the church then is really more, it's really nothing more than just, just a club, and, and we just happen to know the rules. The thing is, it's impossible to wield godliness. It's impossible to put godliness off. It's impossible to put godliness on. And, and there's a paradox here at play, which is that godliness is itself supremely valuable, but it cannot be traded. It's worth all the gold in the world, but you cannot get anything in return for it. Which brings me to my second point, which is that godliness is profitable only when it's all that we want. Godliness is profitable when it's all that we want. See, godliness is not the means to an end. It is the end in itself. This is what what Paul says here. He says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. So on the one hand, according to verse 7, which says we brought nothing into the world, we can't take anything out of the world, on the one hand, we don't really have anything. And I think that's an important piece of the big picture that we all need to grasp, is that in the big picture, we have nothing. We bring nothing into this world. We take nothing with us out of it. On the one hand, we truly have nothing. But on the other hand, godliness is transcendently valuable. We don't bring godliness into or out of this world. Godliness is itself, it overarches all of that. It's not bound by time and place. But godliness is, is, is valuable in this life and in the life to come, Paul says. It holds promise for the present life and the one to come. So are you content with godliness? Are you content with godliness? You may think, yeah, no, I, godliness is enough for me. Godliness is all I need. I'm content with godliness. But, but, I also really want to have a good time on Friday night. So maybe I can have both. Maybe I can walk in these two sort of worlds. Well, godliness is absolutely enough for me. But I I also really want to live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I've seen that example actually crop up several times over the years. And and if you think that's not a real example, that that absolutely is. Um, And and it's not like anyone makes a conscientious decision, I'm going to reject godliness and pursue this. I think people sometimes, this is true of any number of sins and and lifestyles, is we, we want to have both. We want to be godly, or at least be perceived that way, but we also want to have any number of other things that, that might actually be contrary to God's word, both in reality or maybe just in the motive that, that's driving us to it. Godliness is enough for me, but, and here's, here's a tough one, I also want people to know that I'm godly. See, it's not really enough for me to be godly. People need to acknowledge me for it. I need people to give me some props on this. I am godly, don't you see it? 
It, I, it, godliness is enough for me. But I also want to be revered. I want to be well-liked. I want to be seen as important, etc. The thing is, you cannot compartmentalize godliness. You just can't. You can't break it down into parts. You can't apply it to different areas of your life because true godliness is holistic. It grows outward from the heart and it impacts every aspect of your life. It impacts every aspect of your existence. Which is why Paul can then conclude this paragraph here with some pretty dire warnings about the dangers of discontentedness with godliness. Discontentment, discontentment. He can say that discontentment with a life of godliness and pursuit of other things, maybe even over and against godliness, is actually deadly because godliness is, a, it, is, it is something for all of life. And so, so discontentment then is really, we, we tend to dismiss the idea of discontentment or, or covetousness or whatever, all the different fruits that it has. We tend to dismiss it as something maybe a little bit minor. Uh, you know, if I just had that, oh well, you know. But, but the reality is that discontentment is much more dangerous than we think because discontentment is like, and I, I think this is really borne out here, discontentment is like peering over a cliff where that if you lean forward far enough, eventually you will just fall over the edge to your death. That's, that's where discontentment takes you when godliness is not enough. And so he says here, he describes what this looks like. D- temptations, snares, senseless and harmful desires, ruin, destruction, all kinds of, of evils, and then to cap it all off, to summarize it all, wandering from faith with lives that are marked by grief and pain. What's tragic about this in particular is that most people don't realize that that's where discontentment takes them until it's really too late. Most people don't realize that chasing after things, even things that seem harmless but nevertheless are opposed to God's word or just in the motive that's driving us to it, opposed to God's word. We don't realize how often those things are the first steps to death and despair. Which is why Paul can say godliness with contentment is great gain because all these things that we may have our sights set on, whether material goods or just, or just, the, uh, just an idea or some sort of way in which we can gain notoriety, where we can find whatever it is we've always longed for, these things fade. We don't bring them into this world. We don't take them out. But godliness has eternal value. So let's pick up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God... So we got a contrast that he's setting up here. We've been talking about one way of living, and he's, he's showing Timothy these false teachers, these, these men or women in the church who are displaying these, these characteristics. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. 
pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So my third point here, godliness, which I'm hoping you're seeing here and understanding is really just the Godward life, a God-oriented life. Godliness is cultivated from regeneration to glorification, from new birth to resurrection life in eternity, from, from confession to, to glory. Godliness is, is with us every step of the way. It defines that, that journey. Now, despite Paul's charge here to Timothy, he calls Timothy a, a man of God, which generally is more of a, a way of describing like an Old Testament prophet, or in this case, like the pastor overseer of, of a church or system of churches here in Ephesus, as it is in Timothy's case. Uh, this man of God distinction for Timothy is not so much to distinguish him from, from the sheep as it is to distinguish him from these wolves that we've just addressed. So I think what, what's being said here, though, while it is spoken directly to Timothy, it has very good, broad application to all of God's people in his churches. So there are applications here that really focus on a few different verbs. You know them. You love them. We got four verbs here. Let's see what they are. Verse 11, Paul says to flee. Flee these things. And what are these things? Well, as we've discussed, he's saying flee, I think, this utilitarian view of godliness that sees godliness as a means to an end, godliness as a, a, a currency to be traded for what you really want in this world. He says flee that and all the trappings that come with it. But he doesn't just say stop, right? I, I love that about God's word. And I, I love that about this passage. It would be pretty... It'd be pretty, uh, I don't know, awful if it was just, hey, stop it, stop. Don't do that. But Paul doesn't do that. The Lord rarely, if ever, does that. He, he also gives us, uh, uh, here's what you should do. It's just so gracious. And so Paul says, flee from this, but pursue these things. You pursue, you pursue righteousness, and I want you to think of righteousness not just in terms of like justification, you've been made right before the Lord, but think of righteousness in terms of uprightness, in terms of a life that exemplifies walking rightly with the Lord. He says to pursue godliness. He says to pursue faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You may be thinking, I thought we were talking about godliness, and there's godliness kind of embedded in this list of things that we're supposed to pursue but I hope as you, as you read this, you, uh, you know, 
notice. Godliness is not at odds with any of these things. And I think on some level, all of these words are different facets of really the same thing, the Christian life. I don't know if you guys know this. I, uh, I found this out several months ago, and it, uh, it's just blown my mind ever since I learned this. Some of you maybe already know, and, and it's going to be, it should still be amazing to you. Did you know that broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and cabbage and kale and some other like kale variant are all the same plant? Did you know, right? Did you know that? They're the same plant. They've just been, different versions of it have been modified through the centuries by farmers and, and whatever so that they emphasize different parts of the plant so that, you know, you grow cabbage and you're not getting little broccolis growing off of it. But, like, if you look at one of these plants, any version of it, you can kind of see, oh, I can see where we ended up getting cabbage out of that or Brussels sprouts. I mean, Brussels sprouts and cabbage, come on, right? Right? It's all part of it. Godliness is the broccoli of, 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 of Christian character. It's all intermingled. It's all, it's all together. You can't have any of these things without any of the other things. And so we, we pursue godliness. We're, we're commanded to keep with the broccoli uh, metaphor here. We're commanded really to, to cultivate Godward lives. To cultivate Godward lives. But how do we do that? One of the things that Paul reminds Timothy of here, and I think it's really important but maybe easy to overlook, is, is, is the importance of and the need for witnesses. It's one of the first things that Paul appeals to Timothy about. He says, remember, remember the confession you made in the presence of many witnesses. And I, and I think that's just a really helpful reminder that we, we need one another if we're going to walk in godliness and if we're going to grow as believers. And we don't just need, like, the church in general. I mean, yeah, of course we, we need believers, and it's an encouragement to, to see the work of God among believers around the world or even just across town. But we need people who have witnessed our lives, who have witnessed our testimonies, who have witnessed literally our baptisms. We need one another. That's why membership in the local church is so important. That's one of the reasons is because we are all, therefore, witnesses of one another. And as we pursue godliness, we remember these moments along the way where we have confessed our faith, maybe confessed our sin, and where we have pursued the Lord. And we can point each other to it. We can hold each other to that. But we also need purpose. We need discipline. We need vigilance to cultivate godliness. Remember what we said at the beginning. Godliness doesn't just happen. It doesn't just spring up. But it's something that, that is cultivated. It's something that Paul says needs to be pursued. And that takes time. That takes patience with yourself. It takes patience with other people. But it, it requires a, a sense of purpose, discipline, and vigilance. Verse 12, another verb. Paul says, he tells Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. The, the, the contest of the Christian life. Right? Leaning forward, exerting all the energy that you can corral toward this end. And just as an aside here, I think sometimes this passage, fight the good fight of the faith, is, 
so often just kind of ripped out of this paragraph as if it stands on its own, which on some level it does. But let's not forget the characteristics that also should, be, should make Christians known, right? Gentleness, love. That's the kind of person Paul is also telling to fight the good fight of the faith. I think that's worth remembering. Take hold. In other words, seize the eternal life. Take, take it by the horns. Grab it. Own it. Make it yours. It, it, it is yours to take. And he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. I, I love what, what the NIV does with that. It says, to which you were called when you made your good confession. And I think that's so helpful because it puts these two ideas together, being called and making that confession. These things go hand in hand. They, they work in tandem. And the eternal life that you were called to, you were called to even in the moment that you have made the good confession where you declare who Jesus is and what he has done and that you believe it, that you have bought in. This is a reference to conversion, possibly, probably even baptism. Maybe there was some sort of statement that would be made when a person was baptized at this time in history. But it was a public profession. It was well known among the church, at least, what a person believed, where they were at, and that we were all on the same page, the same team. In other words, Paul is saying, remember how it all began. Remember how it all began. Right, if, if my third point here is that godliness is cultivated from regeneration to glorification, it's important for us to start at the beginning, which is that the Lord has bought you, he has redeemed you, and if you, if you know him through Jesus, you can never forget that moment. You must always be mindful of the fact that the Lord began something good in you. I think so often we tend to look forward and we want to just look forward. And, and that's important to look forward, but that can't be all we do. We also have to look back. We also have to see evidences of God's grace in our life in the past because that's the only way we're really going to be able to move forward into the future, certain that he'll fulfill what he promised for then. It's one thing to trust in the Lord for something he has never done. It's another thing to trust in the Lord about something that he's already proven to you he is more than willing and capable of doing. So Paul says, remember how it began. Remember the good confession you made. Remember to take hold of the eternal life that is yours when you made that confession. And then he gives Timothy a charge. He gives him a command. He gives him some direction. And it's mindful, it's with, with these two witnesses in mind. God the Father, who gives life to all things, and Christ Jesus, who made the good confession. That's, that's really interesting. Because Paul has just told Timothy, right? He, he said, take hold of the eternal life, to which you were called when you made the good confession. And now, here we are, and he brings forth two witnesses for this, this charge that he's giving Timothy, these two witnesses who are there to basically ratify and sign off on what's happened. God the Father, 
who he says gives life to all things, and Christ Jesus, who made the good confession. In other words, Timothy, what I'm telling you to do, what I'm calling you to do, this isn't, this isn't really ultimately about you. This isn't ultimately grounded in your strength, your ability, your capacity, your wherewithal. Timothy, as Paul will later say in one of these letters, you got a weak stomach. You should probably drink more wine to kind of help, help with your problems. That's, that's where Timothy is at. Timothy does not have the wherewithal to do all of this on his own. But, but Paul knows that there are two witnesses who will equip him with everything he needs for eternal life and, and for this life of confession. The Father and the Son. The Father who gives life and the Son who himself has made the good confession. If you don't, if maybe you're not aware, but it seems that Paul is maybe referring to an event in Matthew and in John where Jesus himself reveals some truth to Pontius Pilate. And so Matthew 27, verse 11, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. In other words, yeah, I am. You know, do you believe that? But then also John 18, 37, Pontius Pilate is recorded as saying, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So this confession that Paul is telling, is reminding Timothy of, is the same confession that he's reminding Timothy Jesus has already made, which is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and you'll notice that's exactly how he concludes this section. Before he says amen, all he can do is talk about the kingly, sovereign authority and rule of God in the universe, over the universe. So what's happened here is that we've taken a weird shift from thinking about godliness as something that is very deeply personal and internal and something that you just kind of tinker with over time and we'll see what happens. And now godliness has cosmic significance. In fact, godliness, your godliness, like you, yourself, any godliness you possess, any godliness you grow in is something that is rooted not in you. It is rooted in the king of life. It is rooted in the Father who gives life and the Son who goes before you and making this confession, Jesus Christ is the King of all things. So, so do you see where Paul's coming from? Godliness with contentment is great gain. You have direct access to the King of glory. I'm sorry, what else is it that you want? I'm sorry, you want to trade godliness for something else? No, 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 no. You don't understand what godliness is. You don't understand the source, the root of godliness. Paul is saying to Timothy, not just remember how it all began, but recognize the one who upholds and exemplifies this life of godliness. It's not just past, it's present, it's right now. How does the earth continue to revolve, revolve around the sun? It's not you, it's God Almighty. He's the one who makes this happen. He's the one who propels this forward. 
Why would you want anything else? And what's holding you back from pursuing godliness, from taking hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession that Jesus Christ has already gone before you in making? How do we do this? We, we keep the commandment, Paul says, unstained and free from reproach. And commandment's an interesting word. Another way you could translate that would be like commission. And I think when we consider what Paul is talking to Timothy about, about this, this real moment in time where he made the good confession, very likely when he himself was visibly, physically baptized in front of a body of believers. That's a, that's a commissioning. Timothy's being sent forward, he's being sent out, and, and Paul wants him to keep that commissioning unstained and, and irreproachable. You know, when we think of bearing reproach, we don't usually think of ideas bearing reproach. We don't think of something like a commandment or a commission bearing reproach. We think of people bearing reproach. Timothy is so wrapped up in this commission the Lord has given him which is the same commission that he's given, really, frankly, to all who have made this good confession. And so Paul is saying, you, you keep this commission unstained and free from reproach. Keep, keep yourself this way, pursuing godliness. He wants Timothy to keep the end in mind. He says, do this until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Reminds me of Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. The one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We pursue godliness and we live godly lives as we consider him who holds the future. Not just our past not just undergirding, upholding us right now, but the one who will and has sworn to bring us all the way home. Listen to who this person is. Listen to this description in verse 15. He is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He alone has immortality. Not he alone is immortal. He has immortality. This is a thing that belongs to him. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see him. And to him belong honor and eternal dominion. The call to godliness is impossible to fulfill on our own. There there are so many ways to short-circuit this thing. I think we're we're all really aware you know, as I was preparing even for this morning, I just, I, I kind of wondered how it would be received or perceived to spend this amount of time talking about just godliness, its importance. You know, wh- why are we talking about this today? Sometimes I think godliness sounds or can sound has this connotation of, of being legalistic or maybe kind of basic baseline. Uh, maybe even, if we're honest, a little boring. I mean, think about how often we talk about people being godly when really what we mean is there's really not much else I can say about them. Right? You do it. I've done it. We do it. Well, he's godly. He's a godly guy. He's dull. You do not want to hang out with him, but he's godly. Godliness is so often seen as this kind of uh, reserve compliment. 
Not something really to be treasured, pursued, sought after above any other characteristic you might describe yourself with. My concern is that if we are bored with godliness or if we see godliness as something merely to deploy, to wield as needed, then we have gravely misunderstood the gospel, right? Go back to 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. The mystery of godliness, according to Paul, is not, it's not a concept, it's a person. The mystery of godliness is wrapped up, it's indistinguishable from the person and work of Jesus Christ, Because godliness is how the gospel overflows from our lives. And, and without, uh, without godliness, we, we have to wonder if we have understood the gospel, the person, the work of Jesus at all. See, Jesus died to save us from our sin, and to redeem us, to transform us in, in the present and into the future. Jesus, he bore the, the brunt of the, he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. He doesn't just clean up our past. He doesn't just make us sort of n- neutral now, because we'd find a way to mess that up, right? But, but in fact, he actually goes, he goes before us. He imparts to us his own righteousness for all who know him, who trust in him by faith. And so that carries us in the present. That carries us right now. That's how Jesus and and that's how all of Scripture can talk about eternal life, not as something to to inherit later, but as something to take hold of right now. Because even now, if you are in Christ, you are living eternal life. You are walking towards the inevitable conclusion of history and beyond that Jesus himself has secured and, and made possible and made effectual in your life. And not only does he carry us right now, but he, he will carry you all the way through to the end. He has sworn to do it. And the things of this world, you will leave them behind in that moment. But, but what will you have with you? You'll have Godliness. Because the gospel remains true. The gospel does not change. Our God does not change. And the hope of glory does not fade. So we flee sin, we pursue godliness, we fight, we compete, we take hold of eternity only with hearts and minds that are set on God the life giver and Christ our fearless king. We recall our conversion when you were made alive, when you were called to eternity. We recall our baptism where we confessed and professed our allegiance to King Jesus. We recognize the life-giving presence of the Father and faithful, unflinching witness of Christ Jesus who himself has made the good confession that he is king of all at the cost of his very life. And we anticipate the promises of God and glory of our king. We look forward to it. We live with eyes set on that end, on that 
prize, not on the things around us, not on the ways that we are perceived in this world, but the way that we are perceived in eternity and all that the Lord has for his people. That is how we take hold of eternal life. That is how we pursue godliness. That is how we keep from using godliness for our own selfish, small purposes. That is how we walk in faithfulness. And together, we can say that godliness is worth everything we have. We would trade it all so that we might orient our entire lives, our entire happiness around God in Christ. We trade it all. Do you understand the gospel that way? Would you trade everything if that was all you had left? Would you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this call to godliness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the the humbling truth that despite our best intentions, we we wield godliness ineffectively. We use it for our own purposes and aims and ends sometimes. We do damage to our own souls and to the souls of others when we are discontent with godliness. Godliness, but that's what you've called us to. Not because you want to withhold anything from us, but because in godliness, in the gospel, you have given us everything. And it does not fade. It is kept imperishable waiting for those who believe. Lord, help us to walk by faith. Help us to remind ourselves, remind us. We ask you to remind us of all that you have done, of how you have redeemed and saved us for your namesake, and how you uphold us now, breathing life into our spiritual lungs every moment of the day. But not only that, how you have promised to carry us all the way home, and that all of this depends on you, not on us, but on your work in our lives, Lord. So to that end, would you draw our gaze off of ourselves and off of the things of this world, and would you point us to your majesty, to your glory, to your sovereignty, to the joy, the true blessedness that comes from knowing you and being content with that, not because that's just good enough, but because that is all we need. That is the end of our existence, is that we might know and enjoy you. Or would you work that in us? Would you help us to stir that up, to cultivate that in each other? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.